son was butchered at the Red Wedding, Lord Manderley. But you refused the call. You swore allegiance to House Stark, Lord Glover. But in their hour of greatest need, you refused the call. And you, Lord Kerwin, your father was skinned alive by Ramsay Bolton. Still, you refused the call. But House Mormont remembers. The North remembers. We know no king but the king in the North whose name is Stark. I don't care if he's a bastard. Ned Stark's blood runs through his veins. He's my king from this day until his last day. Welcome back to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And apparently we have and always have a third guest, which is our unofficial mascot, Achilles, who is our parrot. And he's always in the background chirping. In the last episode, he was uh, more talkative. He was rambunctious. We're sorry about that overkill. We didn't even realize until later how bad it was. So our little dragon will be annoying us momentarily. We fed him a little treat, so he's quiet right now. But just be aware, you'll hear him. All right. Today, we're going to talk about the season six episode finale, episode 10, Winds of Winter. Written by Benioff and Weiss, directed by Miguel Sapochnik. I just need to take a second to say... How amazing is Sapochnik? He's the man. He saves every season. Not that it needed to be saved, but they always go out with a bang because of him. I'm a little bit of the opinion that this season needed to be saved. I say nay to that. I've been saying (laughs) all season long, besides, what, seven, eight, and nine, but really eight and nine. No, six, Six, seven, seven, eight. Six, seven, and eight. Yeah. Those weren't the best, but the beginnings before that and after it were amazing. Best season yet. It started off good. Six, seven, and eight lagged a little bit. Even throughout the other episodes, I just felt the pacing was a little bit off. At times, we seemed to be dragging our heels with certain characters. At other times, running through it at a breakneck pace. So I loved that he slowed it down in episode nine. Not in the sense of action. It was crazy. So many things happening. But really taking that deep look... Mm-hmm. at the two characters that we care about the most that are becoming most important to us, John and, and um, Danny, giving us those amazing battle scenes. And then in episode 10, somehow managing to recap every single character and location that was important to us. We said, how in the heck are they going to manage to do all of this? They're not going to wrap it up well, but he did. And in what's being called one of the best episodes of the Game of Thrones series thus far. 
Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 9.6. IMDb gave it a 10. This is the second week in a row that it's gotten a 10, and the first series on IMDb to have two. Wow. Oh, that's right. We we were wondering what uh, the other one was. Last episode, you said there was two, one of which was Game of Thrones. Did you find out what the other one was? Yeah, the other one was Breaking Bad. Okay. But this is the first one to have two back-to-back tens like this. That's crazy. It had a runtime of 69 minutes. I have to say, I was worried about that when we were getting previews for other shows, previews for this show. Yeah. It was like 9.05 and the show hadn't started yet. I was thinking to myself, oh, great, it's going to be 69 minutes, but accounting for the previously on and the title opening sequence. And the previews. They had to do the previews because this show's. You know, this was the last episode of the season, so HBO is trying to get you excited for the next round of shows they have going. Understandably so, but did that have to start at nine o'clock? Couldn't that have started prior to? So we were getting into GOT at nine. I agree with you, but on a business standpoint, they know everyone's tuning He's in watching. at nine. Yeah. yeah, smart. Well, that got me really concerned. I was like, this is just going to be a regular sixty-minute episode by the time all is said and done, and. As we were nearing the end, I was looking at the clock again going, all right, it's 10 o'clock. We're still getting into some pretty serious stuff here. It's 10.02. It's 10.03. They really lived up to having that extended time to put in everything that was really important. I think one of the key things that you notice throughout this episode, just talking in generalities, the music, the scoring. The best. Ramin Jawadi. I hope I'm not killing that amazing this episode we had some really good scores we looked up the titles i think the first one we hear is called light of the seven and it's mostly piano work which is actually original for game of thrones scoring in general yeah that played during the wildfire scenes the building up to the culmination of king's landing and that song builds up too and we'll definitely play that at the end of this episode beautiful song suspenseful It really lets you know what's coming. The visuals of seeing everyone preparing, getting dressed, getting ready. Tommen was putting this outfit on with a chain that I'm going to have to go back and do a second watch because I wasn't quite sure. That didn't look like the normal kingly raiment that he was putting on. Looked pretty badass. Looked like something different. Clearly, Cersei was wearing something different. I knew that something was afoot from the moment they started showing her costume. Mm-hmm. The show is so purposeful with how they dress the characters. Not only was she in complete black, which, yeah, that could have been a statement for the trial, the fact that she was in mourning for herself, a little melodramatic perhaps, but it almost looked like armor. Her neckline came all the way up high yeah. on her. It had the broad shoulders with that silver chain that they were linking mm-hmm. from one shoulder, shoulder to another. Yeah. It looked like she was going into battle, not a trial. She looked like uh, like the witch in Snow White or Cinderella or something. Props to the costume people. Now, this used to be Michelle Clapton for a very long time. However, in recent seasons, we've had April Ferry. But I was almost positive that I saw Michelle Clapton credited in this episode, so I don't know if she's continuing to do work, just not the lead costume designer, or if she came back to help with this episode. I'd like to look a little more into that. The costumes as a whole, if you were paying attention, you probably noticed that 
the prominent women or the women in power were all wearing black yep. in this episode. The whole episode. Lady Olena, Alaria, when they were meeting in Dorne. Danny, I believe it was black because they were talking a lot. They showed the black and red flags or sails, rather, on her ships, which mm -hmm. are the color of House Targaryen. So I think that would match what she was trying to, to put forward here. Was Sansa wearing black, do you remember? I kind of have a feeling that she was. Yeah, I think she's she's been wearing that black coat. I mean, the, there's brown fur, but I think it's mainly black. Yeah. We get the amazing scoring. I think that it's Hear Me Roar, the title of what's playing in the Cersei scenes, where it gets a little more intense and dark. By the way, those are the real words of House Lannister. The thing that they always go around saying, a Lannister always pays his debts. Yeah. It's like their unofficial motto, but it's not their actual house words, which are hear me roar. You also get Winter Has Come. That plays in the background of the John and Sansa scenes, the touching moments. It's the softer music. And I believe you get something called The Winds of Winter, which might have been playing at the very end of the episode. Okay. They're all amazing. You can buy that album, I, I guess. The whole yeah. season soundtrack. Particularly great for season six, if you're interested. Yeah. Okay, not seen in this episode, the major players, or somewhat major. We didn't see Jorah. We didn't see the Hound, or the Brotherhood, for that matter. And we didn't see Brienne and Pod. Were you upset about any of those characters not getting a check-in? No, I mean, they had to do a lot this episode. And I was cool with that. I agree. We I feel like they left off. Finally got to see Bran. <laughs> yeah, they left off in, a, in an okay place with those people. We didn't need to see them. Deaths for this episode. Okay, here we go. The High Sparrow, Marjorie, Loris, Mace, all the Tyrells, Kevin Lannister, Lancel Lannister, Grandmaster Pycelle, Tommen, Walder Frey, Walder Rivers, Lothar Frey, I think that's everybody. An interesting note there about Tommen. The actor who plays Tommen mm -hmm. has now played two deaths on this series. Because originally they had a different actor for Tommen when he was younger. Okay. And at that time, the kid that we see here was playing Martin Lannister, a smaller role. The kid that Jamie winds up killing when he's imprisoned to get out and away from the Starks. Oh. Remember he strangles his cousin? Yeah. So that was this actor had to play that death. And then later he got cast as Tommen, and now he plays the death again here. Wow. And he's obviously the only character on the show to have two deaths. <laughs> well, yet. Yeah. I mean, if Snow far. dies again, he literally has two deaths. Yeah, that would be, but oh, 80, that would be terrible. What is it, like 80 or 90% of those kills are by Cersei? Yeah, you got quite a few. And three from Arya. All of the phrase. Well, that's right, yeah. So we got Cersei is High Sparrow, Marjorie Tyrell, Loras Tyrell, the Lord of the High Garden himself, mm -hmm. and her own uncle. Kevin. Yep. And Lancel. I mean, she's indirectly responsible because Lancel winds up getting killed by the wildfire. And then countless civilians that were there, the nobility that came to watch the trial. Yeah. Kevin deserves to die because he's the only one with a human name. <laughs> or our kind of human names. Kevin, Cersei, like, come on. Kind of a fun fact. This is a spoiler that I think I can give away now from the books. It was not Cersei that killed Kevin or Grandmaster Pycelle. 
It was Bob. Varys. Varys had actually come back to King's Landing. Oh. Snuck up on Kevin in his chambers and shot him with a crossbow and then staged his little birds to attack Grand Maester Pycelle, much the way we saw in this episode. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. The last thing to talk about is our opening title sequence. We finally see Winterfell restored. Ever since Theon took it over and then the Boltons and it was burned, you've been seeing smoke coming out of Winterfell as though it was still burning. In the opening sequence? Yeah. Yeah. And then the Flayed Man banners of the Boltons hanging. That's right. And today we got it nice and fresh looking, not burning, and with the Stark banners flying proud. You also see the twins returning with good reason because they're in this episode. However... Dorne also returning, but no Old Town, even though we did see that location here. Huh. I can't always figure out why it is they're putting these things in or not. Perhaps if Old Town becomes a bigger player, it will get a spot. I worry that this means it's not going to be as important as it was in the books, though I was really happy we finally got to see it. I can't wait to talk about that when we get into our crow's eye. I have two fun facts for you. The first is that I was reading about an interview with the showrunners, Benioff and Weiss, and they stated a while back that when they had a sit-down with Martin and he was revealing to them the course of the upcoming seasons, how that played out in the books, so they would have their outline and know how to approach this, Mm -hmm. they said there were three holy shit moments. (laughs) The first was that Shireen Baratheon would be burned alive by her father, so this was back before that even happened in season five. The second was the meaning of Hodor's name and its correlation <laughs> to his death. And the third was to be revealed at the end of the show. Now, I don't know if that means at the end of this season or the end of the series altogether. Okay. I could see quite a few holy shit moments in this episode, but I don't think any of them, the showrunners, wouldn't have seen coming. Right. I think they probably saw the Cersei wildfire thing coming, much as we did. We know they knew about Jon Snow's parentage. That's how they passed this test to even make the show in the first place. So I wonder, that's something fun to chew on for a while. Do you think when they're in this meeting, that when George is talking, they're sitting there like fans, like, oh, what? You know, or do you think they're all professional about it? I think it's probably a mixture of both, as evidenced by this reveal here. With their three holy shit moments where they're just sitting there going, no way, that's how Hodor dies and that's what his name means. And what do you mean Stannis burns his own daughter? Yeah, I'd like to be a fly in that room because I wonder how George presents it. Because whenever you hear him in, in interviews, he's very dry. Yeah. So I wonder if he's sitting there very dry about it or if he's like reading from a book, from like a part of the book. His manuscript. Yeah, and and like storytelling it. Or passionate this, about blah, blah, blah. it. Yeah. yeah. I wonder. Okay, and the second fact, with the death of Mace Tyrell, so you were saying the head of Highgarden. Now, I mean, he was never truly the head of Highgarden. Elena was always the one orchestrating the plans, but he was on paper and officially the ruler. All official heads of Westerosi great houses that we've seen from the beginning of the show are now dead. Oh. The Aarons. We saw John Aaron, one of the first to be taken from us when this started in season one, The Hand of the King. We saw Stark when Ned Stark was executed, around that same time Baratheon when Robert died. 
By the way, the Baratheon line may be totally extinct now. We believe that Gendry is out there somewhere, perhaps some of Robert's bastards, but for legitimate heirs, I don't think we have anyone left. The Targaryens, the Mad King, Rhaegar, they were all sort of dead before we even started this. The Tullys, we saw Hoster Tully, Catelyn's father die shortly into the series. The Lannisters with the death of Tywin. Hmm. The Martells, when Prince Doran was murdered very recently by the Sand Snakes. Now the Tyrells without Mace and the Greyjoys when Euron murdered Balon. Wow. I'd like to see a visual of tallies of all that have died next to all that are still living. But that's pretty amazing. Every single one of the great houses, we are now looking at a complete second or third generation ruling. Yep. Humans. I'd like to talk about one more thing before we get into our crow's eye, and that's the discussion revolving around Jon Snow's parentage, the reveal that we got tonight with that second part of the vision from the Tower of Joy flashback Mm -hmm. that Bran received, and what that means for the future of Game of Thrones, for Jon's future. How does that impact things? I think you need to look at this from two perspectives. His right to rule Winterfell, to be the king in the north or the lord of Winterfell or whatever you want, and his right potentially to the Iron Throne. I think it was pretty much spelled out for us tonight that John's parents are Rhaegar and Lyanna. Of course. After she whispers, they go right to John's face. <laughs> Would you agree with that? I mean, not being a book reader, not having all of these clues that you've been following, just what's laid out for you in the TV show. Is that how you come out of episode 10? Absolutely. Okay. Presuming that, starting off with Winterfell, he still has less right to rule there than his siblings because that makes him the son of Lyanna and not Ned. Right. So Ned's children would certainly come first. You have Bran still out there as a male heir. If he were to die, then you have Sansa and then Arya. He would be last on that list, theoretically. However... I haven't heard a lot of mention about this. I wonder why people aren't talking about it. Maybe just because they think there's no way for this to come to light or for it to be important. But Rob said that he named John as his heir prior to his death. Right. If we think about that conversation that he had with his mother, with Catelyn, he told her he planned to legitimize Jon Snow and name him as his heir until a son was born to him from Jane, given that he believed at the time wrongly that his other true-born brothers and Arya were dead and Sansa was a prisoner of the Lannisters. He couldn't he couldn't die leaving that so uncertain. He saw the way things were shaking out with other great families and potential heirs dying and not having a plan for that. And so he signed a decree in the presence of several lords as witnesses on TV and in the books. But it's unknown what became of that, what happened to that decree. Would that have potentially wound up somewhere, or is it just lost? If someone were to find it, would that be important to anybody? Would anybody care that Rob said, I want this person to be my heir? Might the decree say he legitimized him? And would that be correct because he was king in the north at the time that John's no longer a bastard? If you look at the books... It was speculated that Rob gave it to Mage Mormont, 
so Lady Liana's, I think, mother that we don't see really in the TV series. People think that it might show up in Old Town. Just because this is a place where all official documents go, characters that are in the book, if you follow a storyline to where it might get to, it could potentially be at the Citadel and Sam could discover it. But again, we see the Northern Lord's reaction to Rob as a ruler and how things went for him. And I think they put a lot less stock in Rob's words and that might not matter to them. No, probably. He wasn't a ruler for very long. So now you go over to the bigger issue of John's right to the Iron Throne, his right to rule. Now, I am not of the belief that John would want to take the throne or would want to rule the kingdoms in any way. But if other people pushed him towards that, if something were to happen to Danny, if he thinks that this is his responsibility, a lot of if, if, ifs. But if that were all to happen, does he have a right to be there? Even if we do find out for sure that it was Rhaegar and Lyanna that were his parents, he's still a bastard, right? Because Rhaegar was married to Elia at the time. Yeah. We heard a lot of talk about that Elia of Dorne and how in the Sack of King's Landing, the mountain raped her and killed her children. So that was his wife first before he got together with Lyanna. If it's true that they had a consensual relationship, they might have gotten married in secret. True. And it was kind of common for the Targaryens to practice polygamy, if you will, to take more than one wife. They were all respected as being wives, and that would put John back in the running. However, this is where it gets a little fuzzy. She might see it that because she was an actual child of Ares, she should come first in succession. But if you follow the rules of this kingdom... Because Rhaegar had a true-born son, the son would come before the girl. Right. Even though she's kind of like his aunt in this equation and, and before him. It gets really weird. I don't think it's going to matter for any of those purposes. I think it's going to be more about John's destiny and how does this parentage steer him towards what's going to be important for him. Maybe even a little bit of this prince that was promised prophecy. If he comes face-to-face with a dragon, could that be important that he has Targaryen blood in him? If you want to look at what was actually said in that scene, I know that we didn't get all of the audio. It was sort of hidden from us. Yeah. It seems as though Lyanna said, his name is, and then it cuts out, if Robert finds out he'll kill him, you have to protect him. Promise me, Ned. So I think it's possible that she could have wanted a more Targaryen name for him than John, And Ned realized that and realized it would mean that he wasn't safe and so decided to pick something else. Yeah. John Aaron was sort of his surrogate father. He respected him. He loved him. And thus we get Jon Snow. It's a smarter move. So maybe his name is different. And would that mean anything Is there a reason why they revealed she was the mother but felt the need to not tell us the father to keep that hidden after so much exposition surrounding this? Maybe. uh, Or maybe it's just uh, for the visual because they were going to go right to John's face. Right. So they were just uh, filling in the blank with his face. Yeah. Seeing the baby and then cutting right to is a pretty clear message. Close what, up with John. What do you think it would mean that he's not Ned Stark's son, though? Does that do something for you? Does that make you feel upset? 
that these children aren't actually his siblings. They're his cousins, Sansa and Arya and Bran. Does that change your perspective on anything? Not at all. I don't think... I thought all of this, these games where if you're his son and his daughter, the first son, and it was when you were born, there was a full moon. It means, you know, (laughs) I don't think, especially with us knowing what the real trouble is, it never bothered me or never consumed my thoughts of who was next or who deserved it. John deserves it. He saved the Stark name. Yeah. And he's done, he saved so many, he saved a species species he saved the free folk <laughs> that's weird i think of them as a different species yeah. but you know uh he deserves it rightfully so i don't i don't care about any of that other stuff and it probably doesn't matter danny's coming over if she does in fact rule she wants to do everything differently she wants to change everything it's probably gonna, not going to matter these old ways of succession and who came first and blah 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 no it's not it's probably going to be about a partnership with john and him being king in the north, warden of the north, whatever you want to call him. The only reason it matters to him in any way, shape, or form is to get people behind him and listening to his message so that right. they can fight the White Walkers. Now, I thought all of this might be more important for him because Danny might take longer to get there. So he would have to rally the northern lords, maybe rally the rest of the houses in the Seven Kingdoms, and having a title might make that easier. But holy shit, is Danny getting here faster than I could have ever predicted? She's already on ships headed over here now. With that being said, do you think that the new king in the Iron Islands, do you think he's like written off the story now because she doesn't need him? I don't You're see him on, fitting. Greyjoy. Yeah, I don't see him fitting in the story anymore. Unless it's to come in and cause problems at some point on their trip to Westeros or when they get there. I don't. If they built a thousand ships already. I don't think they're going <laughs> to drop that, though. There's no way that they leave us like that with Yuri and they don't go back to it. Yeah. I don't know what the significance will be. You know, emotionally, I don't want any more quarrel between our heroes, quote unquote, and other humans. I'm ready for everyone to unite like Independence Day and <laughs> fight the aliens. <laughs> that would be nice. But as we go through our discussion with our overview I think that's one thing to notice. We'll point out areas of possible trouble where even though the enemy is becoming clearer to all of us, Danny's on her way to help save things and John is unifying the North, there still is trouble. Yeah. We're not totally on the same page yet. So let's get into our crow's eye view and start off where the action began at King's Landing. On the day of the trial, which was supposed to be for Cersei and Loras, the High Sparrow and many of the city's elite gather at the Great Sept of Baelor. Loras confesses to his homosexuality and sins and begs to atone by giving up his name and title as heir to Highgarden and joining the Faith Militant. Does this ever suck that he has to go through all of this just to die moments later? That's pretty bad. Completely unnecessary pain of having to lie about who he is at the core of his being, undergo physical mutilation while they carve this star into his skin, all for nothing. We see what Marjorie's ultimate plan was for him, though. This is how she was going to get out of it. I was going to ask you about that. I I was still left wondering what Marjorie's big plan was. I still don't get it. What do you see with that? Well, I think her main goal was to get Loras out of trouble. 
this is how she gets him there, that he will swear his life to the faith militant. Perhaps eventually there was a goal for how to get them unentangled from the High Sparrow and that religion, but he walks out of there, I guess, with a lesser punishment because he swears his service to the gods. Okay. Whereas Cersei will be tried for much higher crimes, will absolutely not swear those same oaths and, I guess, be punished and take down her rule and open that up for them to rule in peace now. So Marjorie would have had Cersei out of the way. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't be and ruling, really. Safe. They wouldn't be... Yeah, not with him still so much in power and controlling things, the High Sparrow. I have to believe she had some kind of long-term plan for that, but I guess yeah. it doesn't matter anymore. It don't matter. Well, Cersei fails to appear, and the High Sparrow sends Lancel to retrieve her. We get a clip of the mountain barring Tommen from leaving his room. Meanwhile, Kyburn lures Grandmaster Pycelle into his chambers, and the little birds stab him to death. What did you think about the last scene with Grandmaster Pycelle? There was no real payoff to showing that he was actually a healthier man than he appeared to be. Right. Always putting on this front so people would underestimate him, but that didn't really go any further than that. Well, we see a lot of plans not going any further. Yeah. Cersei just puts puts the kibosh on everything. But I, this whole scene that you're you're describing, this one, the whole thing leading up to the explosion mm-hmm. was so beautiful, and the music helped with it. Like the beats were great, and you felt the tension rising as they're moving further and further into this dungeon. Mm-hmm. I I enjoyed it. It showed that this dude's uh, little birds are a little more uh, dangerous, or at least. Uh, physically dangerous than Varys's little birds. Well, we believe, though, that Kyburn inherited them from Varys. Right, yeah. But but he's putting them to work in a much darker yeah. way. Yeah. Kids are very formidable. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think you're right that Sapochnik is taking us through beat for beat with the characters who were maybe more minor in the Game of Thrones or grabbing at power but never destined to reach it yeah. because their schemes were not as good as someone else. And so they're being taken down very swiftly, one right after the next. After that, we see Lancel following one of the little birds and discovering this massive cache of wildfire that's stored underneath the sept. That's when Light of the Seven starts playing is when he sees the kid running down the stairs. Yeah, and I thought this was one of Lancel's finest acting moments, actually. Yeah. The anxiety and the just trying to get to that candle mm-hmm. before it goes down, realizing how immense these implications are, and he can't get to it because he's been stabbed. Yeah, and what's funny is Cersei and her crew did not need that to happen. It was more of a fuck you to him before he dies because him being there does not set off the fire. It's no. the candle. No. So it's just a, another... like Just take him out. <laughs> when she was the one that seduced him and got him into this whole mess in right. the first place. Something wrong. You have nothing to fear, Your Grace. The trial will begin shortly. Cersei is not here. Tommen is not here. Why do you think they are not here? If the accused is not here, she will be tried regardless. We cannot escape the justice of the gods. Forget about the bloody gods and listen to what I'm telling you. Cersei understands the consequences of her absence, and she is absent anyway, which means she does not intend to suffer those consequences. The trial can wait. We all need to leave. 
And inside of the sept, we see Marjorie trying to warn the crowd and to warn the High Sparrow, but the Faith Militant is blocking the doors. Yep. She knows what's up right away. The time is ticking by. Cersei's still not here. She knows how important it is to be there. And thus, if she's not, it means she's up to something. That was great. She's talked back to the High Sparrow. The High Sparrow, you see, he's totally underestimating Cersei. And not even thinking that this could be possible. And then kind of stands there in shock when it's his own men keeping everyone in. He should have been like, open the doors, you know, and let everyone pour out. Yeah, it wouldn't well, have mattered, but still. Well, like you said, he still thinks he's in control that he's talking about. Doesn't matter if she's not here. The trial's going to run with or without her, so mm-hmm. we'll try her if she doesn't come. Marjorie's finally like, you don't get it. She is up to something, and I don't know what it is, but we're all in danger. We need to get the hell out of here. There comes a moment where they're all jostling. The Faith Militant are still guarding them from leaving. And the High Sparrow starts to get it. Yeah. You see it happening on his face. And then you finally get the moment of realization where he's about to agree with Marjorie. And that's when he ignites. I love the the visual they show is of us under the High Sparrow. Mm. And he raises his arms and just explodes from under him. Yeah, like the wildfire coming up from underneath the sept where it's stored. And just the amazing visual effects. You can almost see him burning in the bright green of this flame that we described last episode. Yeah. How powerful the wildfire is just completely engulfing and demolishing the great sept. So like you said, it probably wouldn't have mattered. If Marjorie got them all to listen to her and they left, it would have still been within this radius. I mean, that took a lot out. Yeah. It wasn't like a targeted explosion. And even that was one of my little qualms with this. Mm -hmm. Tyrion mentioned, so it's not just in the book, that there is wildfire stored all over the city. In the major points under the Great Sept, at the Red Keep. Sure, it's not like a trail of one leading to the next, but we discussed how crazy and unpredictable wildfire is. And I don't think that you could just set off this one explosion at the Great Sept and not have it catch on to some other things. Or even as the Sept is burning, if it doesn't ignite the other jars of wildfire underneath, Mm -hmm. you would think it would light other things on the city on fire. I think she would have burned down half the city is my point. Of course. Yeah, that fire doesn't go out very easily. No. You know, I I like to suspend my disbelief in moments like this (laughs) because they got to make it grandiose. That's what we want. That's absolutely what I did. And the scene was so amazing that it didn't bother me a lot. I just wonder why they gave us all these tip-offs, like in the Battle of Blackwater, where it continued to burn even on the water. Mm -hmm. It was so powerful. We were told about all the places it was. Like, they could have, for the show, just said that it was stored under the Great Sept and not remarked that there were caches of it under the Red Keep and everywhere else. Well, it might come back into play again. You think she would possibly use that again? Maybe not her. Maybe the dragons set it off by mistake in the Mm. future with their fire. I don't know. You could be right, though. It could be a card she might play again, because we're going to talk about this a little in a minute. That She doesn't have much left. No, she's got nothing left. But Or this could be the only fire, quote-unquote, that will hurt the walkers. We talked about that. Yeah. That's right. And if this is the only stuff left now... They used it at Blackwater. They used it here. So if there's a little bit still left under the Red Keep that we need in the battle, yeah, that could be important. Hopefully they don't get that far down south. 
That means a lot of people have died if yeah. we get to that part. Yeah. Well, in other news, Cersei is busy capturing Septa Unella and bringing her down to the dungeons. You're not going to die today. You're not going to die for quite a while. Sir Gregor. This is Sir Gregor Clegane. He's quiet too. Your gods have forsaken you. This is your god now. that initially when she was just pouring the wine over her and talking snarky to her i was kind of happy because i hated this this lady oh i was you were meant to hate her i hated her and she was still so in control as well the septa saying well i'm ready to die go ahead do it Hmm. but then she brings in the mountain and you realize she's not done yet she's planning on keeping her down there for a while and torturing her maybe raping her. God knows what she's planning on having the Mountain Dew. Probably whatever he likes. You said Mountain Dew. The Mountain Sorry. Dew. <laughs> his face. Holy shit. That small clip of when he takes oh, off his helmet. What a reveal. Oof. Okay, Trippy. in the books, when we finally get that, there's nothing really under the Mountain's helmet. It's smoke and blood. That clearly would have been impossible to depict, so I wondered what we were going to see when he finally took it off. And yeah. this was such a great half-dead Frankenstein horror movie-looking oh, visage. Yeah. I wonder <clears throat> what he's going to do. Um, I loved her speech, you know. I love blah, blah, blah. I love blah, blah, blah. Oh. I loved killing your master or whatever it was, but yeah. it, was, it was genius. And I, like, I love that they embellished that moment because we needed that moment with that woman just getting what she deserves yeah except until the mountain comes in and then we're like well shit nobody deserves that nobody deserves repeated rape and torture at the hands of this undead mountain stein speak for yourself for god knows how many days and her speech i thought just solidified it that it was such mixed feelings up until this point Mm mm-hmm you don't want Cersei to win. You don't want thousands of people to die that don't deserve it in Wildfire. We did kind of like Marjorie as a character. What the heck has Mace or Loras ever done to hurt someone? She's becoming completely unhinged. There are parts where we are rooting for her. Yes. We've followed her for so long that there there is a piece of us that wants to see this revenge. But then she starts taking it too far. And her speech illustrates just how disconnected she is. That now that she has this bit of power, she's completely out for revenge. She's not going to deny it. She's not going to play games anymore. She's just going to be who she is. And that is a very, very dark and scary person. It's a dangerous woman, and we're going to, I'm going to live to regret enjoying her winning because uh, she's going to, it's obviously, we think it's going to be easy when 
the Queen of Dragons or Mother of Dragons comes in, but obviously the show's not going to make it easy. And uh, something's going to happen, and I'm going to regret the fact that I was on Cersei's side, even for that moment. Yeah, and we've learned that she doesn't go down without a fight. If there was anybody fighting for power in King's Landing that should not have won here, it was her. She will be the most dangerous, especially because we see that she's too busy having fun with her torture and revenge to think about Tommen. Yeah. Her son, who she supposedly did all of this for, her last living child, she brings the mountain down so he's no longer there watching Tommen. Nobody is. Apparently, she doesn't think about his reaction to seeing the Sept go up with his wife and his new mentor that he's been brainwashed into loving and all of these other people that he's responsible for. Yeah, that's not a time for a kid to be left alone. And uh, that just goes to show that she was more in- involved in her own head not to really worry about those those uh, emotions. She probably doesn't know what emotions feels like, so forgot forgot that her son would have them. Well, and if we've seen any humanity from her, any true emotions, anything good, it's always been surrounding the love of her children. Yeah. And Tommen was one of the most innocent... The last child she had left, if you think back to her walk of atonement, she went through all of that. Probably the worst humiliation someone like Cersei could suffer, being knocked down in the public view that way, just to get back to him, just because she needed to see him. Do you think she was still mad at him uh, basically shunning her out? No, I don't think so. I think, like you said, she got so caught up in she's been playing this Game of Thrones for so long now, suffering so many indignities, so many things that she didn't want to do, so many other people ruling her and controlling her. Mm -hmm. She finally thinks she's getting to the place where she wants to be. Marjorie steps in, and she can see it all slipping away from her, the kingdom, her own son, people taking her dignity from her, even her beauty. She was stripped of all of that, and... Now that she finally has the chance to get her revenge, she was completely immersed in it. Yeah. I don't even think she gave a moment's thought to what Tommen could be going through. We don't even see her being told either, because it doesn't matter. But uh, that scene when he Tommen kills himself, I did not see that coming. That was a shock. Me too. It was a very quiet scene, and he just, matter of fact, walks up to the window and just doesn't even jump. He just lets his body fall. Not a moment's hesitation either. From a kid so young, he's just completely overtaken. This show, and especially this episode, and even last episode, it's it's very Greek tragedy-esque. You know, it's got a Greek tragedy vibe to it. I was just going to say, what a tragic storyline for this kid. I mean, he's really never done a thing wrong Mm -hmm. in his whole life. You know, it's what an awful ending for him. Let's not forget he was a little pussy, though. Well, he was, <laughs> but he was still so young. He was being influenced by these it's people true. that he thought he was making decisions for what was right and what was good. Yeah, so when Cersei finally is told, she's upset for, like, a second. No true grief for Tommen because I think, like you said, she is slowly shutting down her emotions if they don't revolve around revenge. And she has her brief time to be upset for him and then that's it they have literally taken almost every single thing she cares about yeah the one thing she's wanted the throne is within her reach and she steps up there and she takes it 
Well, you can see in her face, she's not happy. She's finally attained the power that she wanted, but she's lost everything. Yeah. And you see it in her face. I don't think she's happy. I, I, I don't think she's like, okay, now my next steps. She's hurting. She's dead inside. The look between her and Jamie says... Yeah, I was just going to say, she sacrificed everything to get there, and now probably Jamie as well, because this is the last thing she has. Mm -hmm. And as she's sitting there, we see Jamie's look. And I could see probably a million different thoughts and emotions flash behind him. Primarily, I think, shock. How the hell did you just cause this shit storm of a circus? Yeah. <laughs> and perhaps I'm looking too far into this, but I, I believe this is what the series has been setting you up for, that he's having flashbacks to the Mad King. This is exactly what he sacrificed his name, his honor, his dignity for to become known as the Kingslayer for the rest of time to take out this man because he was trying to set the entire city on fire and burn it all to the ground. Right. And that exact thing that he fought so hard to stop from happening, mm -hmm. Cersei has just made a reality. Yeah. So I think he hates her now. I'm wondering, I, you know, if, I want him to be on the quote-unquote good guy side, and I'm hoping this pushes him to it. I mean, I want to like him. I really do. So if he leaves now and, and fights for John, that'd be great. I don't see that happening, but that would be something Well, I'd I was enjoy. thinking more along the lines of taking her down. If he was okay with killing one king to stop that destruction, would I, he kill her? I don't think so. No, no, it's not in him. He he just one episode ago he was talking about he'll do anything for her. I think the most he could do or he would end up doing is walking away. And would that even be redemptive? Like would that feel right if he did that for us no. as viewers? No, not for me. I do have to say I kept thinking when she's sitting in that throne and she's got the guards everyone there like saluting her or whatever. Mhm. Mm these people are What's wrong with these people? First of all, they go through how many different kings in these last couple of years, one after the other after the other. Mm -hmm. And do they? Do we really think they have the same emotional respect every single time? Like, long live the king. Nope. Okay, long live this king. No. Nope. Uh, uh, long live this this king. Well, yeah, I don't think they have respect for any of them. They are forced into this through fear and intimidation. I think they did have some love for Marjorie because she did seem to care about them. Yeah. And by extension, Tommen, like they were the people that would perhaps help the small folk. They certainly have no love for Cersei, but they've just seen her blow up half King's Landing. Right. But even with Tommen, it was like, oh, okay, it's like little brother now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because his older brother was the king. Yeah, well, I'm sure they're used to this. This is the way it's been for a really long time. They rule for, you know, some of them shorter, some of them longer. But I did feel as though the crowd in this room, mm -hmm. for her coronation, if you want to call it, did seem more somber than yeah. at previous times. And they right. were just going along with this. And there was this sort of glazed look on everyone's face. Like, shit, we're all in trouble now. Yeah, and you were just saying before I cut you off the fact that she just blew up um, the Citadel with all, almost all the important people in yeah, there. What are they going to say? And, and isn't that a lot of these people, they follow the seven gods, so you blew up their They're holy gods. part. Yeah. Yeah. 
and most of the people here. Now, let me put this in perspective for you. Let's say Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. had to walk through Washington, D.C. naked and getting pelted with fruits and vegetables with mm-hmm. a woman ringing a bell saying shame. And then a few months later, we don't even vote for her. She becomes the president. Mm-hmm. Do you think any of us would have any respect for this woman? No, absolutely not. It, the only thing she would have to play is fear. Yeah. And that's all Cersei's got. And if you really look at, I think she knows it. She's taken this throne by force. Nobody loves her. And she's got nothing left to offer. First of all, she has no claim to the throne whatsoever. She has no way to hold the city. The Lannister army was with Jamie, And yeah. I doubt very highly he's going to keep them there to do any of her fighting for her now. Especially after the speech of doing fighting for Walder Frey. Like, uh, you could see his menacing of, like, I'm tired of my name doing other people's biddings. Yep. And this is definitely other people's biddings. She has no real money. We know that the crown has been in debt to the Iron Bank, mm-hmm. or to the Bank of Bravos, rather, for a while now. She has dwindling resources. She has no access to her breadbasket regions now to feed her people because she severed the ties with all of her alliances, like with High Garden, mm-hmm. that brought the food into the kingdom. She's got no heirs to take over after her. She's got no alliances. Nothing. And this whole ticket to her power, like we said, was really a one-time deal. So if things get out of control again, she can't just keep blowing stuff up. No. So it's only a matter of time. This is going to be a very short-lived reign, and I think we are seeing her there to lead us to the greater confrontation, like you said, perhaps that's Danny coming in and this ultimate showdown between the two of them. So I thought that was a really great way to leave off King's Landing for the ending of this season. I couldn't have pictured that going better. Oh, me neither. Now we go over to the polar opposite up in Winterfell. Polar opposite. The scene starts out with Davos confronting Melisandre about Shireen's death. We talked about that in the last episode. It had to happen. Melisandre admits to burning Shireen, but says that she did it for the Lord of Light and that her parents, Stannis and Selyse, didn't object. It wasn't just her. Davos doesn't care. He requests permission from Jon to execute her for her crimes. Davos's uh, acting in this scene was amazing. You could feel the passion, the anger, the hurt. He's, he's rarely cared about anything so much. The things he's really loved in life, his sons were taken from him in the Battle of Blackwater. He got close to Shireen and Melisandre killed her. He spent his life in service to Stannis, only to have all of those things taken from him and to find out that Stannis was not the man he thought yeah. that he was. And so now this final blow, it's just too much for him. And I think he does not want to see the same thing happen to John. Yeah. He knows that Stannis was a good and fair and just man that got turned around by By her her poisoning in his ear. Yep. So that might not be on a conscious level right now. He's upset about Shireen, but I think all of that is underneath because Davos is a good and a smart man. And she counters that she will be needed in the Great War. It's important to keep her there, even though she is guilty of these things. Jon's not hearing it. So he decides to take sort of the straightest path that he can. He's not going to execute her, but he exiles her from the north. And if mm-hmm. she ever returns, she's going to be killed. I was having so many thoughts at once here. He couldn't have handled it better. 
he had to do something with her. He couldn't yeah. just keep her there. No. There was too much danger of her eventually getting to him the way she did with Stannis. But I do believe a lot of the things she's saying is true and that we might have needed her for the Great War. We might have just sent away one of our best resources for how to fight these people. Perhaps, but we're still looking at a broken woman unless she's all of a sudden revived. You know what I mean? Like, she was she didn't help him at all when she, he needed her help. That's true, but she was already broken when she brought him back to life. True. And I mean, how much more could you possibly do for somebody than to resurrect them? Now, he didn't put a lot of stock in that. He wasn't all that happy about that. So I think it wasn't a problem for him to send her away, but I wonder if he might regret that eventually. I also felt some parallels to this. Stannis didn't take her to the Battle of Blackwater. It was the only time he didn't take Melisandre with him, and he lost. And she put that in his face for a while afterwards. That's right, yes. Um, we also saw Rob have to make some really tough choices. One of the memorable ones was where he had to execute Harold Karstark, one of his staunchest supporters for murdering the Lannister boys. And it was so gray because the Karstarks said, I thought that was the point. The Lannisters are our enemy. Aren't we here to kill them? Now I'm getting in trouble for killing our enemies. Right. But Rob had to draw that line because he's Ned Stark's son and he's honorable and he's just. And you killed little boys. They're not soldiers at war. And if I don't kill you, I don't show my strength to the rest of my people. So John was kind of faced with his first decision like that. I think he handled it better by finding that middle ground. Yeah. He didn't just purely uh, work off of emotion, which we've seen a lot of us humans in the show just working off of emotion. Mm-hmm. Then we see a conversation between John and Sansa where Sansa apologizes for not telling him. Yeah. You were pretty pissed about this one. They talk a little bit about John leading... But Sansa being the lady of Winterfell seems like they're okay with this alliance together where she's sort of the head of Winterfell, the head of the castle, but he's kind of the military leader and the warden, the king of the north. Right. And they're cool with that. There is no dissension amongst them the way I thought there might be. Well, I'm glad there isn't. I didn't want to deal with that. I'm super glad about that, too. But they really did gloss right yeah. over the whole her lying to him, all of this weird stuff that happened. I would have liked to gotten an explanation from her, like why she didn't tell him. Yeah. Just say why. Okay, I understand you're sorry, but why didn't you tell uh, me? Fuck it, her. it was not super emotionally moving the way I think they intended it to be this great scene between the two of them talking about winter's finally here. Our father always said it was coming. It was sweet and I liked it. Mm -hmm. I liked seeing them standing at the top of Winterfell looking out over a world that is really white now. I mean, we haven't gotten a good view of how much winter actually is here, Yeah. but it was reinforced several times throughout this episode. I just didn't feel that super strong emotional bond and connecting that I think they're trying to force on us. And I think they've been trying to force this John Sansa relationship for a while. And I, it hasn't felt natural to me. No, I, I don't feel it. haven't seen it yet. What I did see, the only thing good. So the next scene, Littlefinger meets with Sansa in the Godswood. Yeah. He finally reveals, probably more to us, the audience, than anything else... 
if this wasn't clear to you, my ultimate goal is to sit on the Iron Throne and have Sansa by my side. Because she is a Catelyn proxy. I was in love with Catelyn my whole life. I couldn't have her. I was never good enough to be ruler of the North. I was never going to make anything of myself. I've made that happen. But now he's watching it slip away a little bit at a time. He's hoping that that's not all gone, that he's still got Sansa kind of wrapped around his finger, but he sees in this scene that that's not true. He lost that when he left her with Ramsay. Yeah. I mean, I don't see her coming back from that. You saw how much hate she had for Ramsay. And uh, she's not going to just roll I over I still that. can't figure out what his plan was there because I can't believe that he knew nothing about Ramsay. I thought that his plan might be to have her stuck there for a little while and then come in and, you know, swoop in and save the day, much the way he did with the Knights of the Vale with John's battle. But so much time, so much stuff being done to her, you had mm-hmm. to know she wasn't going to be okay with that. Yeah. And as it is, the first time he tried to kiss her at the Eerie, she only just reluctantly let it happen because she didn't know what else to do. And right. she didn't have anybody or, or anywhere else to go in the world. It's not like she had any feelings for him. Now, maybe he doesn't care if she really does or not as long as he has her. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's not going to happen now. So he's also trying to put poison into her ears by trying to turn her against Jon Snow a little bit. Yeah. And say she should be sort of like Lady of Winterfell and Queen of the North because John's a bastard. Do you think <clears throat> that seed was planted? I mean, she does pause Absolutely for not. No? I hope not because I don't want to deal with that, that storyline. No, too- I, I think more than her interaction with John, this is what sewed it up for me because she really doesn't... She maybe pauses for a second, I think, to think about will the people accept him because mm-hmm. he's a bastard. But I don't think there's anything in that scene that shows me we're going to go at it for Winterfell. Right. Because John was so accepting and so like, well, no, of course this place is yours. And no, of course you should have mom and dad's old room. Like, it, he really wasn't creating any kind of friction for her to True. go up against. And that's right. exactly the way I saw it going on John's part. Plus, that's furthered by this final scene where we go to later on John gathering the northern lords the knights of the vale and the wildlings to plan for the upcoming invasion of the white walkers it again takes little lady Leanna Mormont standing up making an epic speech shaming the lords for not coming to John's aid going around to each one of them and calling them out and then saying that John has proven himself worthy. And it doesn't matter that he's a bastard. He has Ned Stark's blood running through his veins. Yeah. And that is enough for her. She's going to serve him. She's badass, man. She, we knew she was badass a couple episodes ago, but she was willing to stand up against the grain in this whole conversation mm. with all these people and basically put her foot down and change the... The whole feeling in the room. And as a young female child standing up against these older, huge, gruff men, it's just picking them out out. one by one, you know? Like, uh, we had 62 men and we came and fought this battle. What the hell is your excuse? Uh, They were even like, Leanna Mormont is, what did they say? Something like, basically like... 
It's harsh, it's harsh but true. But true yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this was even better, I thought, than when everyone stood up and declared Rob the king in the north. Yeah, this was better. It was even more emotional and moving. They called him the white wolf. Mm-hmm. You know, Rob was the young wolf. He's the white wolf. I loved that parallel. Such an epic moment. And they show you. The camera pans over to Littlefinger, who's looking on with a grim expression, just yeah. sinking back into the shadows. You already can see the wheels in his brain yes. turning. So it actually scared me when they showed him. because so I was like, oh, fuck, he's not going to sit back on this. Yeah, you can almost hear it just looking at him. Shit, this isn't going right. This isn't what I planned for. How do I counter this? What mm-hmm. do I do next? I said it in our last episode. I was worried about dissension among the ranks. I was worried about uniting the North, which Lady Liana did that for us. And I was worried about what Littlefinger's cost was going to be and how his plans were going to wreak havoc. So they dealt with the Melisandre Davos thing quickly. They dealt with the uniting the North thing quickly. We're left with the Littlefinger threat now. And once again, I never know what he's up to. I don't know now what he plans next or no. how he undermines this. No, me neither. Ugh, I want him to be a good guy. He's not going to be. I'm also a little frustrated with <clears throat> how easily Santa wrote him off. Like as though she had him under her control now. Like, no, I'm not into this anymore. Sorry, just go do something, Littlefinger. Like she, she's still underestimating him. Do you think so? I'm hoping that... Her silence right now isn't her writing him off. It's what all she can do right now is silence. But keeping a watchful eye, I hope she talks to John and be like, look out for Littlefinger. I know he was on our side during this war, but everything he says has a meaning in his own benefit behind it. Well, I was going to say, she still didn't tell him about Littlefinger. She's still pulling this bullshit where the biggest thing she needs to be talking to him about, she's not. Yeah. And he's just sitting there, so obviously the odd man out here. Uh, it's because she's a I'm woman, worried. Worried. and women don't talk about Is things. Is it because they, she's a woman? They drop clues, and we're supposed to read in on all these clues <laughs> and extrapolate our own story. <laughs> Listen, I don't think it's based on gender, because I think Danny pretty well speaks her mind very clearly to whoever <laughs> she wants. True. But I will say, she is the one causing the problems here. I am still worried. I don't see the character arc with her. I still don't see her getting stronger. I saw her taking a nice back seat here a little bit and letting John move forward the way he needs to peaceably, and I like that. Me too. I'm just surprised they ended it on this note for her for the season. But I'm I'm overall really happy with Winterfell. Yeah. What note did you want them to end with her? I I wanted her to come clean, finally. Oh, yeah. To be totally honest with him and, and to be more by his side. In a in a even more supportive way, not just like a oh this is this is great, good for John. Here's here's Dad's room, you know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, wonderful for John Snow. Couldn't be happier. Let's head over to the twins, where we see Walder Frey celebrating the recapture of River Run with the Lannisters and remarking to Jamie they are both alike because hmm. they're both Kingslayers. As Jamie just looks like he wants to kill him in this moment. He reminds him that they are not the same and that the Freys are only rulers because of the Lannisters coming in to save them and he will cut him loose if he can't hold his land. What good are you to me if I have to keep coming in here and winning these battles for you? I was thinking that while he was 
fighting the battle. It was like, why is Jamie even doing this? Mm-hmm. So not the lively banter between Jamie and Braun this time because Jamie is just tired. Mm-hmm. He's just done. You can see it on his face. He wants to get out of this place. He wants to get away from these battles. All the more tragic for him when we see how it ends later where he winds up at King's Landing. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, he's just really done with these frays. And we cut to another scene later where Walder is eating alone. The festivities are over and he's wondering where his sons are. We come back to the servant who we had seen a few times earlier. Jamie pointed him out to Braun and there was some talk about her. Where are my damn moron sons? Black Walder and Lothar promised to be here by midday. They're here, my lord. Well, what are they doing? Trimming their cunt hairs? Tell them to come here, now. But they're already here, my lord. Here, my lord. They weren't easy to carve. Especially Black Walder. My name is Aya Stark. I want you to know that. The last thing you're ever going to see is a Stark smiling down at you as you die. This same servant now reveals that both men, both the Frey sons, are in fact in this room. Mm-hmm. And when Walder questions her, what are you talking about? I don't see them anywhere. She says, no, they're right here, actually. Yeah. They're in this pie that you've been eating, sir. Great scene. Now, okay. Awesome moment. She removes her face to reveal that it's Arya, and then she slits Walder's throat, telling him, this is the last thing you're going to see. My face smiling down at you. She cuts his throat the same way her mom's throat was cut in the very same hall. Mm -hmm. Not that she probably knew that, but... No, but interesting parallels. And amazing that they pulled this in from the books. The fray pies were a big thing, even though it was very different in the books. It was Wyman Manderley that actually killed the frays. You saw him in this scene with John, one of the men to stand up, Mm -hmm. a larger man with kind of whitish hair. They were playing a different role in the Great Northern Conspiracy, one of the people that were pretending to be for the phrase, but secretly were still for the Starks. Okay. And at the end, they wind up standing up and killing the phrase, and you do get the Frey Pies. It's all a really great reference to the rat cook that Bran talked about back in season three. He gave us this story about the rat cook who was a member of the Night's Watch that felt insulted by a visiting king. So he broke guest right by killing the king's sons and feeding them to him cooked into a pie. For this, the gods cursed him by turning him into a rat doomed to eat on his own young for the rest of time. And Bran discussed how it wasn't even feeding this pie of his sons to the king. It was about betraying the guest right that was really the horrible thing that he did here foreshadowing the Red Wedding and this moment that we see here now, all the way back so long ago. Wow. So I love looking at the way these threads were woven in over so many seasons and have payoffs later on. What I was frustrated with was this whole storyline 
Everything they're doing with Arya felt really shoehorned in here to me. Uh, she got over here amazingly quick yeah. to the twins. They have this really short intro where you see the servant. You don't even think anything of her because we don't have enough time to even question it. Right. Before you know it, he's getting killed. Arya's face is coming off. He's eating fray pies. It's like, oh, hurry up, get all this stuff in here because we have to finish Arya up. I don't even feel like she really earned this power. I mean, did she really learn the magic of how to change faces before she left the House of Black and White? Yeah, that's the only thing that gets me because, one, we talked about it last episode that we did not feel satisfied by her storyline with this uh, Lord of No Faces. Mm-hmm. And... They didn't sum it up like we were hoping, like she woke up from the poison or something, and it was all... Had uh, another scene with Jockin, yeah. learned about it. So all of a sudden, she's traveling very far. She chooses to go there first, and she has a face, and she's badass now. <laughs> I, well, I just, uh, we talked about the fact that <clears throat> wearing another face, this is not like you just skin somebody and put on a mask. Right. And just slap it on over your own face. It involves a certain amount of magic and power and glamours to get this to work. Yeah. We did see her do it in the scene where she killed Marin Trant. Mm -hmm. But it was so quick and thrown together that I wondered if she was just sort of copying what she had seen with Jockin and she wasn't totally there yet. We do see that it had repercussions for her later because she was blinded. Right. Um, and they never really wrapped that up for you. And now here she is doing it successfully without without a hitch yeah. in the plan. And I, I don't feel like she earned this scene. It doesn't feel right to me. I agree with you. Although I love the scene and I love to see a Stark get her revenge. But you're right. Like I, This storyline needs to have a better thread for us to understand and enjoy it. And they had her in every episode pretty much throughout the season doing almost nothing. Two second clips of her fighting the wave. You right. could have ended her up at this spot in the last episode if she had had better thought out scenes yeah. throughout the rest of the season. Getting to the place earlier where she shows down against the wave. Really learning from Jockin then how to do this and being sent on a mission to Westeros for real with the power. Maybe I'll have flashbacks with her and Jockin. I, I don't know. That's me again, like last episode, me like coming up with my own storylines to make it make more sense. I, I would have, I would have so hoped that they were going to finish it right. Yeah. And it felt like they knew they didn't handle it right. And so here's some fan service. Here's yeah. what you've always wanted for her to kill one of the most important people on her list. See the phrase, finally get what's coming to them. Checking off her kill list, being a badass. I hope you're happy with the fray pies because we're not going to tell you how she got here. We're not going to fix the storyline. Right. Sorry. We have too much to do. She killed two grown warriors, too. I wonder how she did and that. And had time to bake them into pies. Yeah. Cutting them wasn't easy. They lead you <laughs> to believe she didn't just take the face from the House of Black and White because I thought she might do that in order to escape right. before we resolved it last episode. They lead you to believe that this is a servant girl that already blends in pretty well here. And so did she just kill an innocent serving girl before she oh. started all of this so that she could wear her face? I wonder. And now, if so, also, we're taking some really dark turns for Arya. And we got to remember that the Lord of No Faces, mm -hmm. the deaths mean something. You know, if there always has to be a death, you mm -hmm. know, if you don't kill that, he has to take a life. So you can't willy-nilly kill people, right? Right. So if this wasn't a mission she was sent out 
by Jockin to handle. Mm-hmm. She really is just back to her kill list. Will this come back to bite her? Unless this list is her mission and... As long as it's on the list, it's okay. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I was hoping for the last couple of episodes, that they would get to it with Jockin, mm-hmm. that she had really figured it out, and this was really the way that it worked, right. that they did only kill people that were bad people. It wasn't just so random, and that her list makes sense, and they agree, and that's why he took her in, because he did ultimately want her to just kill these people. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't feel like we really got enough to have no. us think that's true. I think she could wind up being in trouble later. Yeah. So I, I think I asked you this last night. Do you think that her death will come to us in the hands of Jockin eventually when we least expect it? Perhaps by him wearing the face of someone we think mm-hmm. is someone else. Um, yeah, I, I think it could be possible. I think we see her go on for a while longer. I don't think she's going back to her family yet. If she didn't right away go to Winterfell first or go to the wall because she doesn't know her family's there. So go to the wall to find John because he's really the only one she thinks she has left. Right. And they were the closest. So you would think if she was going right back to her family, that's where she'd go. I think she's on to King's Landing to continue with the list because you have Cersei and the Mountain there who are on her list. Oh, boy. So we talked a lot about this Valonqar, part of the prophecy, with Cersei. Would it be Tyrion that winds up killing her? Would it be Jaime coming back around with the Kingslaying? What if it's Arya? I wouldn't mind that. I would love to see Cersei's death at her hands, but I fear for her then going after the mountain. Because she might be able to get Cersei. She's going to probably have some trouble going after (laughs) the mountain. I'd say so. Uh... Yeah, I'm nervous. I'm nervous for that. Let's move out of the twins. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go somewhere fun. A bit of comic relief for this episode. We see Sam and Gilly arrive at Old Town and report to the Citadel, where Sam was scheduled to meet with the Archmaester. This guy was kind of funny. (laughs) The maester that he met when he got there. Not paying him any mind. Sam, awkward as usual, doesn't know how to handle the fact that Gilly and baby Sam aren't allowed in there. I don't know how he didn't think this through. He Uh, knew the whole way down there that they weren't going to be let in. He just sort of shoos them off. Wait here. I'll be back. He's sorry. But while he waits, he's granted access to the library. An open tower that's filled with floors of bookshelves, with chained books. This visual was incredible. It's beautiful. Those lanterns that reflect light. From the roof and yeah. shines it in different sections of the library. Very yes. cool. Those are called astrolabes. I'm sure everybody saw them, the way they reflected light into the stacks, if you will. They're clearly the basis for the astrolabe, which appears in the title sequence of the TV series. We've been seeing this for so long and not knowing what it meant. The showrunners have always said that their conception for the title sequence is that somewhere... There's a maester who toiled away in his cell, constructing a magnificent astrolabe, which the camera is simply moving around during the opening credits. (laughs) Old Town was one of my favorites in the books. I've been waiting forever to see it because it was described so beautifully. We don't get the town itself yet. I hope that we will eventually. We've talked a little bit about it before to give you some more backstory. 
it's one of the first cities that we're seeing other than King's Landing. We've gotten the small towns in the areas, but it's the first real city that we're exposed to. Inside of that, we see the Citadel, which is the seat for the Order of the Maesters, the learned men who advised the Lords of the Seven Kingdoms on matters of scientific, medical, historical. They come here to train to be Maesters. The city of Old Town, where it's located, is in the far southwest of the continent. It was founded many centuries ago to promote and increase learning and knowledge. And it's administered by the Conclave, the ruling council of Archmaesters. The library itself is located in the High Tower that we see when they're first coming up to Old Town, that really tall white tower Mm -hmm. in the front. This is actually the tallest structure in Westeros, even taller than the wall. So while the wall is the largest and the longest, it's the high tower that's the tallest at 800 feet. Coming in second second is the Great Pyramid in Marine. The wall is actually the third tallest at 700 feet. Pretty impressive to see this structure. We also see at one point from there, they are releasing the white messenger ravens. In case you're wondering exactly what these are, they're a special sub-breed kept by the maesters, which are larger, stronger, and smarter than normal ravens. They're only sent out to carry the important official announcement across Westeros that the seasons have changed. So the Citadel gathers reports about weather from maesters all over Westeros, and after they deliberate, they determine when one season can be considered officially ended and the next begun, and they send out the message. We saw this quite a few seasons back, where... I believe Grand Maester Pycelle says, The raven arrived from the Citadel this morning, Your Grace. The Conclave has met, considered reports from all over the Seven Kingdoms, and declared this great summer done at last, the longest summer in living memory. So we knew at that time autumn had come, and here's the message that winter has come. Yep. It is officially begun. Yeah, everything about the visuals here, I loved. I wish we had gotten here sooner in the season. I wish we had more time to see this amazing city, the cobblestone streets, the people that are there, the library. Man, is this Sam's heaven or what? Yeah. But you could just get lost in there, and Gilly's never going to see him again for years. It's true. Wandering through the bookshelves. How about the way they're chained in? Oh, yeah, yeah. So you can't steal them? Because this is, it's not like our world, where there's libraries on every corner that anyone can access. There are very few libraries of books anywhere in any of the kingdoms or continents. There was a small library at the wall. This is the only real official one. They don't have a printer, so someone's handwriting all that. Yeah, It's the only place in the Seven Kingdoms that has official documents, books, letters, anything you could want to know, any history, any knowledge. So that's why it's super important that Sam's there. Where, if you're looking at the map, where on the map is this? It's very far south. Okay. So if you go straight down from King's Landing, Mm -hmm. like you were headed to Dorne, which is the southernmost part of the continent of Westeros and pretty much runs the whole way from east to west and juts out into the narrow sea. Okay. It's just above Dorne and on the western coast. Wow, okay. 
So King's Landing is on the eastern coast. You would have to go straight down and then all the way across to the western coast. And there's a part of land that kind of juts in, and that's where Old Town is situated. Horn Hill was really just above it. I mean, I'm not sure why it's taken Sam so long to get here. (laughs) Geographically, it was really right there. And I really was hoping that we'd get more of this because, like we said, it feels like time is running out for Sam to learn whatever it is he needs to learn there. Yeah. And that's been stressed throughout the books even more so how critical it is that he gets this knowledge. I was really interested to find out, to see him searching through book upon book and, you know, into the wee hours of the night with the candles burning low and finally coming across this one gigantic tome and somewhere inside of it, this forgotten book was the secret of the White Walkers. That'd be amazing. And how to defeat them and histories of dragons or wildfire or the sword lightbringer or, you know, anything. Well, we technically have two seasons left, even though they're shorter. He could find this out in the final season. Before the White Walkers attack? Like, will it no. still be important once he finds that knowledge? It could be just like Littlefinger coming in last minute. <laughs> yeah. I, I want that to be Sam. Yeah. I want him to finally discover his purpose and find something so meaningful, and he brings it back in the nick of time to help John. Be nice. And defeat the White Walkers. Anything more about this scene in Old Town for you? I just thought, because I know how much you read, I was just thinking this would be your heaven. Oh, I wanted to walk right into the TV (laughs) and just stay there. If there was anywhere in the world of Westeros and Essos that I would be headed straight for that Citadel. (laughs) I'll be a maester, whatever it takes to get into that library. You can't. You're a woman. That's a really good question. All the maesters we've seen have been men, right? Yeah. I wonder. No women and children. Yeah, allowed. Does that mean to become a maester as well, though? You can't be a maester if you're not allowed to read and learn. Yeah. But they can. I mean, noble women are trained to read. No, I mean, you can't go into that library to read all that. I was confused, though. Was that just because, like, he brought a woman and child? Like, they're his bring-along. They're not allowed in here. But if you were training to be a maester... But I I think you might be right. It maybe only is for men. All right, let's go over to Dorne. The first time we've seen this location in a while, they really haven't played in the rest of this season since we saw Prince Doran killed. We see Lady Olenna meet with Alaria and the Sand Snakes concerning the possibility of an alliance against the Lannisters. Despite Lady Olenna's distaste for the group and their crimes, she wants revenge against Cersei and her family's deaths. Yeah, so we find out there that she found out already. Right. She learned. Yep. Of the death of very her quickly. Family. Yeah. We we have to rule out time being linear with the show. There's just no way for them to do it. It bothered me a lot less in this episode than it normally does. There were things that pulled me out for a moment, and I was like, wait a second, how did they get there? And especially with Varys going all the way over to Dorne to meet with them and then coming all the way back and winding up on Danny's on ship. ship. was like, what? It was weird, but this is what I'm thinking. <laughs> that clip when Varys is in Dorne, mm-hmm. I think that was shot to be like two episodes ago and they didn't have room to put it in there and they had to put it in to explain everything that's going on and 
just with because of timing and editing, the only spot was in this episode. And I think they had to bite the bullet, and they were like, uh, people are going to complain or bitch, but we have to get this scene in. We haven't had the time to put it in in the other episodes. Yeah, but Varys could have left Marine earlier. Well... I mean, there was no reason for him to really leave. He could have left at any time and just been like, listen, these plots are brewing. Mm-hmm. I got to go somewhere. I'm sorry. I'll be back. They could have uh, played it last episode after he left that one clip. Yeah. But then they couldn't because uh, Marjorie's... Lady Olena had to be there. Exactly. But she could have been the there not knowing that her families were dead, just knowing things were really dire and not trusting fully that Marjorie's plan would shake out and mm-hmm. they needed alliances in case that didn't happen. And the last place to really turn is Dorne. Now, that's a bit surprising to me because the Tyrells and the Martells have not had a peaceful history throughout the course right. of their universe. And they try to show that with how, how bitchy... They've been really at odds with each other. Um, I don't think it's ever come to all-out war, but a lot of skirmishes. (laughs) I think it's funny that Lady Olena acts as us, the audience here, Mm -hmm. in putting down the sand snakes. Oh, you're useless. What's your name? Barbara, sit down. Sit at the kids' table at the adult's talk. The only one she even pays a little bit of respect for is Ilaria, and she really doesn't want to be dealing with her, but she's persuaded when Ilaria offers her heart's desire quote-unquote. And we're wondering right along with her, what is that when Varys walks in and says, fire and blood? Yeah. And those are the words of House Targaryen. I gotta tell you, man, fucking Varys, dare I say, is one of the strongest characters. Absolutely. And when he is with Tyrion together, they together make the strongest character, most scary, most dangerous, and most lovable Mm -hmm. character in the Game of Thrones. He's playing this very smart. The two Targaryen loyalists who fought on the Targaryen side in Robert's Rebellion and never really stopped believing in them were the Tyrells and the Martells. I'm saying the Martells. All the Martells are dead now in Dorne, but you get what I mean. Yeah. These are the two major forces and the two people that still have huge armies ready to fight. Uh, Dorne would be a pretty good landing place, we talked about, for Danny to come over and stop first before making her way up north. Mm-hmm. We're led to believe that they also sent ships because I believe that was supposed to be some of their ships with Danny's fleet as she's riding over. And that's why they had to do that clip, too. That's really weird as well, that Varys got all the way over here, was like, listen, come take your ships over here just so they can come back to land in Dorne or somewhere here in Westeros, because it's going to be really cool when <laughs> we have this scene of this massive yeah. fleet coming in. So you want to be part of that. Yeah. Well, you can't think linear. That's all I can say. But not even linear. What's the point of them saying? Sailing out east for no reason to join her team just to come back west to Westeros, these ships. Unless maybe, maybe they're not landing in Dorne and they need to look yeah. an impressive force. Probably. When they come in, maybe she doesn't want a, like, let's regroup somewhere safe and then move. Maybe she wants to go right to fucking King's Landing. Yep. Yeah. That could be And it. show her strength. Also in that scene... A lot of time must have gone by because her ships have golden dragons on it. Every single sh- ship has a sail, huge sails yeah. with her emblem on it. Those mm. are handmade. There's no machines doing that. So a lot of time has gone by. Yeah, her black and red colors 
on the sails, like you said, the golden dragons on the prows of the ship. Yeah. Really beautiful. Takes time. <laughs> I mean, this definitely leads us right over to Marine, so we can go there now. Uh, the first scene is Danny informing Dario that he's not coming with her to Westeros. As much as I haven't liked this guy or trusted him, I did feel bad for him in this scene. Yeah, I felt bad because he wants to fight with her and for her, and he's in love with her. Mm -hmm. But I think for her, she needed... We know that her plan is to get married, eventually to form an, an alliance to become even stronger, and she can't have that distraction there. Yeah, now people are saying it's weird that she's talking about doing things so differently and breaking the wheel, and she's, you know, over there flirting with Yara and whatever else she's doing, and yet she's going to go back to the traditional ways of marrying another major house to form an alliance. I, I don't think she actually has plans on doing that. We see that Dario saying that Tyrion is the one to tell her she mm -hmm. has to leave him there. Uh, he didn't force her into anything. He probably talked to her. She saw the logic in that. And I don't think she would have any plan of actually marrying somebody again. But the ability to offer that to different houses, yeah. to start to broker alliances, have that be something that's on the table to entice people, it's, it's a chip in the power game. Yeah. Um, I think if she ever does marry, she'll probably wind up marrying multiple people. And having two husbands and a Dario boyfriend on the side and maybe a Yara on the side. I think she's going to do whatever she wants yeah. to do. So we're seeing a lot of this guessing at, oh, who's going to be her king? Yeah. You know, is it going to be Jon Snow? Is she going to marry Yara? I don't think it's going to be as cut and dry as that. She is trying to shake things up. Yes. So I think you're going to see a whole different... Um, Regime under Danny. She's so much stronger now that she has Varys and Tyrion with her. What she lacked in last season, once she got the the land, mm -hmm. is how to control the masses. And these two know how to control the masses, manipulate the masses, and mm -hmm. find out what's going on the best in for, Westeros. For sure. Now, what we talked about in the last episode, though, she's so focused now it took her forever to leave the East because she had this purpose, this mission that she wanted to accomplish. Mm -hmm. She wanted to do something for these people, these slaves, and also to prove to herself that she could rule, that she would be ready when they went to Westeros. Now she's had a fire lit under her ass, and she pretty much just takes off. I mean, she says to Dario, and he doesn't even know yet, I'm leaving you here, and this is what's going to happen. They're going to elect somebody that they want to be a leader, and you're going to make sure that that happens and just keep shit under control. This is a ton of different major cities, yeah. old, old cities, way older than anything in Westeros that have had these ways for thousands of years. She torched a couple ships. She sent a message, but she's leaving now. What they fear is Danny and her dragons and her army and the Unsullied. She's taking everything but Dario and the Second Sons and maybe a contingent of people, mm -hmm. not really leaving strict rules in place with no ruler or leader before she leaves just tell them this election is going to take place and no more slaving and and dario's going to take care of that i mean it's almost like she doesn't give a shit about the east anymore she's what? done no she cares obviously but she has a bigger goal in mind what else would you expect her to do it just feels really rough shot like we talked about we didn't think we'd see her leaving by this mm -hmm. last episode because we thought we'd see her stay behind, wait for them to 
you know, not months, like a couple of days, hold an election, have your ruler, set these things, have a talk with your people. This is how it's going to be. Okay, Dario is going to be the leader of the army contingent here. This is going to be this. I'm going to come back every so often to check up on things. You know, just kind of like lay down the law yeah. for the people before she goes. And it was almost like a P.S. Dario, this is what it's going to be. So. But think about it this way. Let's forget that there's walkers coming. Okay. White walkers. Because mm-hmm. she doesn't know that yet. Right. Let's say she takes over King's Landing. She now rules. So now she has all of Westeros that can check in on this land and make sure things go- are going to according to her plan. So essentially, she's taken what the the older or the past kings have had, the land that they own mm-hmm. or rule over, and she's extended it to yeah, the east. Yeah, it's, it's just weird to me that she spent so many seasons stalling and stalling, and I can't go to Westeros yet. I can't. This is my main goal, but I have to finish this up here. And now, like you said, she doesn't know there's walkers. Yeah. There's no, like, emergency rush in her mind to get over there other than the fact that her army's complete and she's ready to go. Uh, it felt, like, too convenient for the storyline to have her hurry up quick and get over, not so much for her purpose that she's been working on. But I catch your meaning, and again, I was able to suspend my belief for a little while and just, like, be psyched that we were finally getting there because everyone yeah. wanted to leave Marine. That's yes. the bottom line. Um, George did write himself into a dot. I was kind of hoping that Benioff and Weiss would more eloquently get us out of there. Guess it was just as tough for them, but they made up for it with this amazingly emotional scene. Probably the most touching thing I've seen on Game of Thrones. Turn Tyrion. Yeah, now I don't get emotional over much at all in life, period. You know that about me. Right. And never TV series or movies. Uh, I've been following this for a long time. I've been a longtime Game of Thrones fan. I definitely got this surge in my heart when they were calling King in the North for Jon Snow and the White Wolf, and I was, like, just feeling amazing and emotional about it. And I got really emotional at this point with Tyrion. Um, This is a man who has never really believed in anything his whole life, and nobody's believed in him. There Mm -hmm. was no real purpose even for living by the time he'd gotten to the East. He was done with everything in general. And Varys somehow convinced him to give this woman a chance, that she could be something worth it. And he's gotten to this place where he's almost embarrassed at the level to which he believes in her. Yeah. And, and she, in turn, somebody who doesn't get very emotional, Danny, has really done this heartfelt thing of figuring out Westerosi customs because she doesn't know like the hand of the king gets this special little pin so clearly somebody told her probably Varys and she went out and had this fashioned for him because it's important to show him yeah that she honors him and that this position is for real and he deserves it and he finally gets it for real this time and the look on his face was amazing it was very touching you're right and we did say I think last episode when she looks back at him, when she's having a meeting with uh, Reek and the other chick, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, shit, she's, he's really earned her trust. He is her mm-hmm. hand. I actually did say that. Yeah, you did. And now, legit, he's her hand. And he's earned it. And I think, uh, I think this is 
done millions for him uh, emotionally, and um, I, I, that was the best move she could have done. Yeah, he says, I don't have a sword. Like, I want to swear to you right now. And she says, it's your counsel I want. Like, I know what it is that's valuable about you. Yeah. And he kneels to her. It, it's incredible. Um, Even when they're talking before that part, he's giving her counsel. Are you, are you afraid? Mm-hmm. And she shakes her head yes. And he says, that's, that's good. You're in the great game now. And the great game is terrifying. Yeah. Um, if you weren't scared, you'd be like your father. <laughs> well, and the fact that she listens to him about Dario. I mean, she knew eventually it was going to come to an end with this guy, but she did like him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's entirely possible she could have taken him with her for a little while longer and had him as her secret lover. But she sees the wisdom in what Tyrion says. She's really following his advice. Yeah. So I think that this combination of having these other people around her to make sense of things and get her to see things in a different way we saw Cersei completely demolishing her entire small council, doing away with any sort of custom, rights, the way things are supposed to go. For all Danny's talk about breaking the wheel, it's really Cersei who's over there burning the wheel. Complete disregard. All she needs is Kyburn and the mountain, and she's good in life. Fuck everyone else. <laughs> Danny is actually kind of still taking these customs, the things that worked and make sense and are smart, but she's remixing them in her own way, in a way that can work for her. So I thought that was a really interesting highlight for us in this scene. And of course, you go over to the last part where she's joined by Varys and the Dornish ships. She's got House Tyrell. She's got Theon and Yara and the Greyjoys. They even show on one of the boats the Dothraki. <laughs> their horses below. They're not puking their guts out. They're not terrified for their life because they're crossing the poison water everyone's handling it pretty well like you said the ships look so majestic oh it's beautiful with all of their sails so many of them too and you've got the dragons just soaring overhead yeah and even her soldiers are still in line on the ships you'll notice like they're in lines of like eight or whatever seven Mm -hmm. in straight lines like just standing there ready yeah it's crazy how how, th- how these men are so, um, you know, conditioned to be soldiers. I wonder what... I, d- I just saw those men. I didn't see the Dothrakis, but I wonder if they're there too. I think I did see at one point them, and then they went to their horses okay. below, and, and it was supposed right. to indicate, like, every single faction. So you might be right. We might be headed right for a place where she can show her force. Great way to leave the season off with her. Our last location is in the far north. As Bran and Benjen near the wall, Benjen says he needs to leave, stating that the wall's magical protection prevents the dead from being able to pass. He leaves them at the Weirwood. If you're confused about where this is, we do see the wall sort of in the background. This is the place where the Night's Watch and John go to take their vows mm-hmm. when they worship the old gods. We saw John go there. It's it's very short distance yeah, from the wall. Right there. I think Benjen couldn't take him any closer because of these magical forces. Uh, it's a little frustrating that he felt the need to mm-hmm. take the horse too. Oh yeah. Like I know it's his horse, but couldn't you find another like Bran can't even walk you're basically dumping the kid still a ways away yeah. I, I guess the feeling probably for him is that if he can't pass beyond this point 
the White Walkers can't either. So Bran is safe here. Right. They can take now the time they need to get back to the wall. But this also should indicate for us that Benjen does not know about this thing. And the fact that he was touched by the king, the White King. Or that even if he knows that he was, he doesn't equate that to passing through the wall. And- oh, it was so eerily foreshadowing. It's like, damn it, don't pass the wall. Like, put two and two together. Yeah. It happened once. It can happen again. And that's why we haven't seen the White Walkers. It's like they're patiently waiting for that for point to, to happen. Up. And yeah. I thought Benjen was going to know that and somehow share this knowledge. Or I thought Bran would get an important vision before he went too far. And so I'm thinking, okay, here's the heart tree right here at the bo- borderline. So he'll get the vision before he crosses this line to where he can't return and he fucks it up. Yeah. And what we're treated to is the second part of the Tower of Joy. Don't get me wrong. I've been waiting for this since they showed the first part. I couldn't believe it took us so long to get back to this. Yeah. But this is almost a self-evident truth at this point. This is a little bonus that we've been waiting on to find out about John's parentage. Yeah. What we really needed to see for Bran's sake here was something that's going to help him right now to not mess this up and to know what to do next about these guys. Yeah. Um, and he didn't get that. Nope. We did see the young Ned finding his sister, Liana at the Tower of Joy, who was inside hemorrhaging from childbirth and dying. And with her last breath telling Ned, pleading with Ned, to take care of her son and keep him safe. Mm-hmm. So book readers know all about Promise Me, Ned, Promise Me, and her final words, and have been speculating after Where Did Benjen Go? The longest-running theory in Game of Thrones, who are Jon Snow's parents, another 20-year-long stretch that Benioff and Weiss have cleared up for us. Yes. At the end of season six. What does it mean? <clears throat> At this point, I don't know. <clears throat> and what does it mean for Bran? I mean, will this be true? We're all thinking this must be true, right? That he passes through and the magic is broken. Do you see any other way that that goes? No. I mean, oh, no, it sucks because we see it coming and we can't stop it. And when he tells John, does that mean that John's going to say, I must leave the North now to find my family should be horrible, too. Well, but the whole North knew that they were gathering to eventually fight the White Walkers. I wonder if they were intending on staying here at Winterfell and making their stand. They had to go back to the Wall eventually, right? I mean, he left Ed and those guys pretty much defenseless there. I think he might have left Ghost there. We haven't seen him, but I I think he was planning to go back, like get Sansa set up in Winterfell and then go back to take the army to the wall to make their stand because the wall is the greatest line of defense. If you have to wait in in Winterfell, you're pretty much saying, I know it's all fucked already. I think John's next mission is going to have people going up north, but his mission is going to be to spread the word as much as possible. So next season, we're going to see him traveling uh, south for the first time. And getting and trying to spread the word and get people on his side, I think. Uh, Speculating. I think he's going to go back to the wall. He might send people out to do that. Okay. Um, to bring some of his crew back here to set up the defense again at the wall. And then maybe, yeah, send the word out with others. But I'm thinking one of the things that could save us here, if Bran goes back to try to go through the wall. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you remember, it's not just... The magic keeping anyone out. The only people that can pass through are men of the Night's Watch. So the only way he got through the first time was by Sam taking him through. 
Well, then how'd the wildlings get through? They climbed over it. Uh, the giant went in. Because the Night's Watch opened the door. Uh. And they were there. Like, Sam had to be fit. You can be escorted by somebody. Or if they're there at the okay, time. so he'll be escorted. You can pass. But, like, if he shows up there and he's got no man of the Night's Watch, I don't think he can get through the gate. Right. So, maybe that saves us temporarily. No. They'll see him. They'll see him. All, like, d- all 25 men that are there right now? I mean, yeah, I guess they have to see they're, him. Yeah, but... they're looking up there. Ugh. Constant watch. I don't know. That's a, only part of the storyline. Maybe just because I want everything to be good now, but that's not going <laughs> to happen. Well, I think it ended as good as it possibly could for such an intense season. The plot lines that they left dangling were mm-hmm. really awesome to look forward to. We better get something out of Bran, though. Something good, for fuck's sake. I hope so. It's... It's been a while now since we've learned about his magic, and all they've done with it is keep going back to showing us who's Jon Snow. And how Hodor got fucked up. Now, we know that's that's all got to be really important if it's visions that he's seeing, but we want more now from him. Yeah, we want him to do some shit. (laughs) Overall, I have to say, though, this is one of my favorite episodes of all time, I think it's definitely the best episode 10 season finale that we've had in Game of Thrones so far. It felt the most complete, like they almost told an entire story in one 69-minute episode. And for that reason, mm-hmm. my Raven rating for episode 10 is 10 Ravens. Whoa. The first time I've ever given a perfect 10. What was your rating for last episode? 9.8. Okay. I said I wanted to come close because there were so many things I loved about it, but certain storylines that didn't measure up to the beautiful action and visual Mm -hmm. stuff from Battle of the Bastards. But here you had the visuals and the storylines and the complete storytelling and character arcs, just everything in one episode. So, yeah, I give it a 10. 10. Perfect 10. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going with, well, let's see. Last episode, I did 9.5 Ravens. Mm -hmm. This one, I'm going Mm 9.8. They did a great job keeping the story flowing. Mm -hmm. Um, They gave us what we wanted, but they also gave us more to want and more questions. Um, They don't leave us hanging like a certain Walking Dead. Um, And the the music, the, the beautiful music, again, with the beautiful visuals. Yeah. It was just... I loved it. It was a Costume perfect way designs, to end the season. The sets, everything. Yeah. And I love their whole concept of the second to last episode is the big bang. And then the last one is the story sum ups with also some shocking moments mm-hmm. and giving you more questions to, uh, you know, earn, uh, yearn for. Yeah. And this year in episode 10, we had tons of deaths. We had big action in the explosion at King's Landing. Mm -hmm. We had a new location of Old Town. We had good people winning and moving our plot line forward. I mean, really, we were treated in a way that no one episode, I think, has given us thus far on Game of Thrones. Beautiful. My favorite season yet. So who owns the throne for you this week, Jason? Well, again, Lady Mormont owned the moment. Mm -hmm. Again, can't say own the episode, but... Own the moment. She did that uh, two episodes ago, too? Yeah, I, I named her for two episodes ago as my own the throne. Um, I, got, I got to go with the obvious, Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. Um, I went with him last week, so I'm glad you're doing him this week. And uh, the reasons are very uh, obvious. Mm-hmm. He's got people behind him. 
He's got the love of his people. He's got his power, the Stark's power back. Mm-hmm. Um, it was almost Cersei, but the fact that she lost everything to get this power, mm. I think, throws her off of the uh, almost owning the throne. I agree with you, and I don't really think she owns it at all. I think she barely took it by force and will hold it for a very short time. She's received the throne, but at too much of a cost. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and last week I split my own the throne between Danny and John. So I'm going to go a little more obscure this week. It's another Lyanna, Lyanna Stark, because we now know that she had the foresight all the way back then to know the way this game goes, mm-hmm. to know the way the world works, and the fact that a child from her and Rhaegar would result in Robert hunting him down, other people hunting him down, this kid being thrust into a world that he never asked for. He'd never get to live a real life, if he even lived past his first birthday. So she knows he needs to be disguised. She knows that Ned needs to take care of him and that if he's hidden, she just might be able to keep him out of danger. And keep him from the Game of Thrones, even though he should be such a major player with the heritage he has. Yeah. So with that being said, why would she name him a Targaryen obvious name? That's a good point. And maybe she did just say John. Yeah. And it was um, just the visual. Pleasing. But either way, I think she trusted in Ned, this brother that she loved, and a man who was so honorable and good mm-hmm. that he would find a way to make that happen and to be able to keep him under the radar, which he did. For a really long time. Nice. I like that. A little different, a little bit obscure. Yeah, so I guess you got to give secondary to Ned there too because he followed through on that his entire life. And and a bit at the risk of his own honor to say that he was coming back with a bastard. And, Did he tell his know, wife? Not the real story. He told no. her it was a bastard he had on the road oh, while wow. he was out at war. So that's compromising his own honor in a marriage that was still very new. Common for people to do that back in the day. But it, it was very unned like. He wasn't a man to really do something like that. And wow. she did hold it against him, Catelyn, hmm. him and John, for his entire life. It's part of what shaped John to be the person he is today. And I think made him all the better for it. So, really complex web of how he gets to this spot where he is the Jon Snow we know now. Yeah. And I think that's incredible. Um, I also had a great quote from this episode from Jon Snow where he's convening his council and he says the war is not over and I promise you friends the true enemy won't wait out the storm he brings the storm so winter is coming and I think that closes out our episode 10 season 6 finale review yes it does but it does not close out our Game of Thrones season 10 no we have two bonus episodes coming out next week we're going to do a Part one of our bonus, which is Christina and myself, and then we're going to do a part two bonus with a couple of friends of ours, uh, some Game of Thronians, and that should be fun. Yeah, please look forward to the bonus one. We're going to talk about the important moments of season six, how we rate things, some book differences and spoilers for those of you who are into that. We'll get a little bit into prophecies and dreams. It's going to be a lot of fun. So stay tuned. We'll get that out for you as soon as we can. Also, after that is complete, uh, I said it last episode, I'll say it again, we're going to be doing Mr. Robot Season 2. Yes. Now, if you aren't familiar with Mr. Robot, I strongly 
request that you guys watch season one and go back and listen to our episodes. That was a great season for us. And you're going to love the show. If you love surprises, if you love mystery and great storytelling and great filmmaking, great visuals and music, Mr. Robot is there to fill your void when Game of Thrones isn't going on. Yeah, Game of Thrones just ended. I'm sure that you're looking for stuff to watch. If you're like us, you've already binge-watched all of the Orange is the New Black series. This is a great time to get back there. And like Jason says, rewatch the Mr. Robot. You'll be ready on time for the new season and our new episode reviews. Until next time, this round's on me. Ooh.